morning. Good to see you all here on this. The trees are flowering. Let's look at our bulletins. The offering box, of course, Andrea's number. Days of the acts and facts are here. Acts and facts looks like this this month. Baby bottle drive. Sunday, Mother's Day, the ninth. They're out there. In the oh, they're out there. Yeah, in the drive starts today. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead and take it and uh, do day and uh, fill it up and bring it back. And we know that that's a, a big part of the ministry. And uh, a, a note on communion: we're gonna we're gonna have that next Sunday. So communion postponed till next Sunday. All right. Anything else? Uh, we're supposed to have a dinner. I think uh, next Sunday as well. So if we want to coordinate that, we can uh, get together and put a sign-up sheet. Uh, okay. Maybe we can get that out on text or something. Uh, I do have a, one thing. Does it matter that next weekend is Mother's Day again? Yes, it does. Oh, yes. It's, Does it matter to the ladies? Yes. Yeah, that's... that's okay, then we'll have that, the weekend. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of double booking, I guess. So, <laughs> Good point. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so communion next Sunday, Mother's Day next Sunday, dinner the following. All right, um, scripture for meditation this morning, Galatians, the third chapter, read 1 through 14, 1812 in the Bible.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship Him. Dale, can I ask you to open for us? All right, this morning, as you've noticed, there's no piano player. Jared is, um, has performances today, three of them starting this morning, I think, at 10. So we, last week, picked him, so to number two in the hymnal, number two in the brown hymnal. And hopefully this all works correctly. Jared downloaded them for me from, I think it's the Free Methodist hymnal. And last week, before we left, they weren't perfect. <laughs> is, um, has Let's performances see. today. And there is, um, starting this morning, two verses and I think a key so change and then we go to we, the third verse. <clears throat>
seated. Now, this might be a moot point, but I did, uh, Mrs. Clayton, Laura was here <laughs> at the end of service, and I asked her her favorite hymn, and she picked um, Beat on My Vision, which is 382 in the brown. Can I put you on the spot, though, for why? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of my favorites. Um, yes, ma'am? Do you want me to play it for a little bit? Yes. If it starts to, yes. We'll get us started and then shut it off if it starts messing with us. It's one of my favorites. Um, yes, ma'am? Do you want me to play it for a little bit? Yes. If it starts to, yes. We'll get us started and then shut it off if it starts messing with us. It's one of my favorites. Um, yes, ma'am? Shut the mic off. Yes, if it starts to, yes, we'll get us started and then shut it off if it's got some messing with us. One of my favorites. Um, yes, ma'am? Shut the mic off. Yes, if it starts to, yes, we'll get us started and then shut it off if it's got some messing with us. Yes, well, I said with nobody here, it was perfect. <laughs>
Amen. That was kind of a treat for me because I'm sitting right by Jared and he's playing every week and I can't hear you all. And I love Jared's playing and I don't want him to stop, but it's, uh, it's wonderful to hear you sing. Scripture reading this morning, Genesis, the 12th chapter, we'll be reading verses 1 through 9, page 17 in the Pew Bible. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Father in heaven, please add your blessing to this holy an inspired word. Amen. You take your Brahm hymnal once again and turn to number 546. 546.
Our text today, whoa, <laughs> is very loud. <laughs> Genesis 12. As you noted, Jared's away today. He has a, he has a concert that he had to do. He didn't schedule it. Somebody else is scheduled for him. We're going to be in Genesis 12 today. As we come to our text today and to the scriptures, let's ask the Lord to be present with us. Thank you, dear Savior, for the truth of your word. Here we are in the book of beginnings. And what is the book of beginnings talking about? talking about the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords, talking about the Christ. I pray that you will help us today, way back in the book of Genesis, God was telling us about his son that would come. pray that you will bless and honor your word today. If we know you, we need to be encouraged, we need to be strengthened in our faith. There's so many things that are going on that trouble us. We can't control them, but you can, and we praise you for that. And then there are those that are unbelievers, and so they're skeptics, they're mockers, and only you can change your heart. None of us can change a heart. Only God can do that, and I pray that you will, because unless you change a heart, we'll perish in our sin. We'll die the way we are. How are we? We're dead in trespasses and sins, the scripture says. Either grace is going to get us or death is going to get us. The sin is going to get us. I'm praying that grace will win out for all of us today. Honor and bless Jesus, whom we love and serve. And thank you, Lord, for your word in Christ's name. Amen. Our text is Genesis 12. We want to talk about the patriarchs. And as we consider our subject, we remember what we learned about Abraham and Sarah. These two people were simply a married couple who lived at the time after the great flood when the pagan population attempted to build a tower worship center to thwart God's command to spread out and repopulate the earth. They said, we're not going to do it. We're going to stay right here. Well, they didn't say that, but their actions said that. They were going to build their own little city. God, however, frustrated their plans by confusing their language. How easy God controls the will of man. Confused their languages so they couldn't understand one another. <laughs> and that forced them to form people groups according to their common languages. And they had to leave off building the city. The city was Babylon. Why, well, it's called Babel, by the way. 
because when he confused their language, nobody could understand. They could only stand, understand their particular language group, but they couldn't stand, understand this group over here or this group over here. And it was what? It was Bedlam. Babel. So they said, we can't do this. We can't. We, we can't communicate. How are we going to get anything done around here? So they dispersed. God controls us so easily. We think we're hot stuff. You know, we're going to defy God and we'll show him. You know, all he does is change our language. And we can't communicate. Now, Abraham and Sarah, like Abram's father, Terah, they were idolaters. All the nations at this time were idolaters. They worshipped man-made gods. They refused to acknowledge the God of creation as the Lord of the universe. And God left off dealing with the nations, plural, in general, and set his affection on Abraham and Sarah for no foreseeable reason than his mercy and his grace. Now, that's not us. We always look for uh, cause and effect. We think, well, now, wait a minute here. God had to have a reason for choosing to bless Abram and Sarah. There just must have been some resident quality or goodness in them which drew out the attention of God. That's the way we think. But to say such a thing would destroy the concept of mercy and grace, if you think about it. I mean, if God chooses to bless people based on something good seen in them, then it's they, not God, who becomes the deciding factor in God's actions. And never, man is never the deciding factor with God. God acts, he does not react. He plans, his plans are carried out, he determines the outcomes before anything is placed in motion. That's our God. That's the creator God of the universe. So with regard to this couple, God simply opened another chapter in human history in which he turned his attention to establishing a people for his own glory. Pagan nations were set aside at this time. And God zoned in on one married couple. So we could say it this way. Abraham and Sarah became the restart button. God broke the chain of sinful descendants in that Sarah was barren. Well, that would do it, wouldn't it? And secondly, in that the promised seed, when her reproductive capacities were energized later life, was not Isaac. So, oh, yes, it was. That was her son's name. No, no. You've got to think in terms of the spiritual reality. The blessed seed, the promised seed, was not Isaac. 
but the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16 says so. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Whoa. Today's study hones in on our God's promise to Abraham and Sarah and how they acted upon it. So let's talk about acting on a promise. Firstly, there has to be a communication of the promise. And we find that in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. Verse 4. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. (laughs) Really? Oh. God says, Go and to a land, and I'll show you, and you'll know it when you get there. And he does it. He packs up his goods. What would compel a person to pull up stakes in his own hometown, head out for places unknown, dragging his wife and his nephew Lot, by the way, with him to who knows where? Who does that? Seemingly this is about the most insane and irresponsible action anyone could take. Who in their right mind does something like this? What could Abram have been thinking? Was he thinking? What circumstances fell into place? that gave Abram the resolve to do what appears to the onlooker as a very irrational act. I mean, I want you to put yourself in his sandals for a moment. Would you have responded in this way? Be honest. There is no history here. Abraham does not know the God of the Bible. No, he worships idols creations of his own hands, God passed down to him from his father, Terah, who the scripture says was an idolater. Ah, but could that be a clue? What do we know about idols? Well, King David gives us this contrast. I'm reading for you. Our God, says David, is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, referring to the nation's idols, their idols are silver and gold, and they're made by the hands of men. They have mouths but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Mm. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verse 3 and following. 
I think if there were one word that we could use to label the activity of idols, it would be the word impotent. Impotent. Name any activity characteristic of someone alive and well, and the idols of the nations cannot do it. Not then, not now, not ever. David emphasizes this when, after saying, they have mouths, but they cannot speak, he adds the thought, as if this needed to be added, but the Spirit encouraged him to add this. He adds the thought, they cannot utter a sound with their throats. I thought, cannot speak said at all. And then he adds this thought, they cannot utter a sound with their throats. It's not redundant. David is saying that the idols cannot converse in the language of men. That's true. But beyond that, they cannot even grunt out a sound of sorts like the beasts of the field will at least have a way of letting their presence be known, don't they? My Siamese cat, Zanna, cannot talk. But I want to tell you, at least every morning, I know he's alive. I know he's hungry. As he sits outside the bedroom door in the hallway, meowing for me to get up and provide him with some food. And I don't know if you've ever heard a Siamese cat meow. It isn't meow. It's more like it's deep, it's guttural it shakes the windows. Think then of Abram and Sarah idolaters by practice idolaters who all of their lives have ordered their religious allegiance around a carving of stone or a casting of metal Impotent, immobile, as Isaiah writes, they lift it, the idol, to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it up in its place and, and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. <laughs> it cannot save him from his trouble. Isaiah 46, verse 7. That's the idols of the nation. Jeremiah adds, Why should not, who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made, they dressed in blue and purple and all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is, get it now, the living God. Ooh. The eternal king. And when he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. 
Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Tell them that. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And when he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and he brings out the wind from its storehouse. And everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. And when their judgment comes, they will perish. Jeremiah 10, verses 7 and following. Brethren, you might think that such idolatry is for third world countries like the Amazonians of South America or the Aborigines from Australia or the Hindus from India or the Buddhists from China. We think we Americans would never be so foolish as to bow down to a piece of wood or a casting of precious metal. We wouldn't do that, would we? I was talking to a brother about the fact that America, the USA, does not seem to have any special mention in Scripture. Ever think about that? I mean, it's almost as though the Holy Spirit has glossed over our very extensive exception, the description of the Revelation, which describes Babylon's worship. very nation emerging from the ruins of the Tower of Babel, according to Genesis 11. Here's how they're described in these terms. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn for her. Terrified at their torment, they will stand far off and cry, Whoa, whoa, oh great city! Oh Babylon, city of power! In one hour, your doom has come. Read on. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and the articles of every kind made of ivory and costly wood and bronze and iron and marble cargoes of cinnamon and spice of incense and myrrh and frankincense of wine and olive oil of fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men and they will say the fruit you long for is gone from you all your riches and splendors have vanished never to be recovered the merchants mentioned again who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off and terrified at 
her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, oh great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, with glittering gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ships, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off when they see the smoke of her burning. They will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Oh, whoa, whoa, oh, great city! where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Revelation 18, verse 19, verse 9 and following. Trillions of dollars go overseas from America to the merchants, endeavoring to protect their income and profits by investing in foreign banks. That's what they do. America has its idols, America has abandoned its Christian roots. Years ago, I was checking the terrorist watch list. You can go on the internet and check that, by the way. This was years ago. I don't know if it's true today. I didn't check it. The number one terrorist threat listed on the Homeland Security watch list was evangelical Christians. That's what the world thinks about you what it thinks about me. Evangelical Christians on the terrorists watchless. Americans bow down to the dollar and the wealth of the world and we have disowned the living God and opted for impotent idols. This was Abraham. This was Sarah centuries ago. Products of the Babel Tower, the idolatry fostered by its builders. But something stupendous happened. Something stupendous happened. Something occurred which so shook Abraham to his core that he could not ignore it. What happened? Verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country and go to a land I will show you. Verse 4. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. Verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. What is all of this? Brethren, this is the God who talks. That's what all this is. A God who speaks the language of men. A God who gives directions. A God who makes promises with no equivocation. A God that I do not carry around on my shoulder. 
but one who appears to me, a God who is alive, whose voice thunders out commands for me to obey and promise me blessings if I do and trouble if I doubt. This is an alive God. This is an active God. This is a God who is intervening in the ordering of our life as though he knew me and claimed me for his own. And how utterly revolutionary. I want you to think about that. It had occurred once before when men had abandoned God for idols in the days before the flood. But Noah's flood taught his descendants nothing. <laughs> nothing. They soon reverted to their idolatry and God was as silent as ever before until, until Abram, until Sarah. And once again, God broke silence as he abandoned the nations to their superstitions and to their lies and reached down to two nobodies to make of them a nation of people who would listen when God speaks. Wow. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses. And again we are warned, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. That's who you're dealing with here. The living God. You have come to a thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it. <laughs> See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven.
The words once more indicate, I'm still reading scripture, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verse 22 and following. You know who you're playing with here? It's not some piece of wood. It's not silver or gold coinage. It's not your mansion over a hilltop. We are being confronted by the living God. No one in the day of judgment will be able to say, well, I didn't know. No one ever told me. You know, our God is a communicating God. He's laid out before us in the Bible his plan, his will, his expectations, his resolve. The only ones who will be surprised are those who have turned a deaf ear to him. Jesus explained to the crowds of his day, then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Huh. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark doesn't know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of the light. And when he had finished speaking, our God speaks. Jesus left and hid himself from them. And even Jesus, after he had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah elsewhere says, he has blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts, so that they cannot see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, so that I would heal them. And Isaiah said this because, I'm reading scripture, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. And he spoke about him. John 12, 
verses 35 and following. God has spoken, brethren, but are we listening? Abraham and Sarah listened. They listened. What can we say about this covenant with Abraham and Sarah? I'll tell you one thing. Their promises are only as good as the person behind them. You know that. A father trying hard to have some quality time with his family says to his children, You know, kids, I know of late that dad has been working very long hours. I haven't had time to spend with you. But I promise, oh boy, here it comes. I promise that this Saturday we will grab our fishing gear. We'll go to Houghton Lake for a day of fun and fishing. But Friday night into Saturday morning, a large squall rolls into the area. The wind is blowing so hard that it's raining horizontally. You know what that's like. It becomes obvious that the outing will have to be canceled. It's raining this way, not this way. And Dad's promise came to be came to a screeching halt because because while his intent was true and genuine, he could not control the weather. Which, as it turned out, would have been rather foolish and dangerous had he got in a boat and gone out on Houghton Lake in that kind of a storm. You know, this is the way it is with our promises, isn't it? Because as human beings, we have no crystal ball to observe the future. And what is even more relevant, we have no power to change the future. We must bow to the many externals that enable or disable our participation in life. Health issues, money to afford things, cooperation of friends and relatives, work schedules, the law and rules of the land, on and on it goes. And what all of this means, what is almost universally accepted, is that we make a promise to do something for or with someone. And when we do that, it is understood. It's understood by the promise maker and the promise recipient as well that we have every intent of complying with our promise, but, but circumstances may arise which will force us to forfeit our decision. Unless we're pathological liars that no one trusts, people will generally cut us some slack if we have to break our promise for unseen, uncontrollable events. But, here it is, none of those limitations which affect our promises, none of them apply to God. They do not apply to God because there are no unforeseen or uncontrollable events which arise to hamper God's promises. Oh, God, 
was thinking, I didn't count on that. Ooh. Or this is a biggie. I don't know what I can do about that. None of our limitations apply to God. God is omniscient, which means he knows all. And he knows all there is to know about what he knows. And no one or no thing, nothing, can thwart his intent. God puts it this way. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I'm God. There's no other. I am God. There's no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what's still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Whoa. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land I bring a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and following. You don't know a being like this. You don't know another being like this. I don't know of another being like this. Again, Isaiah says, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I'm God, yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Isaiah 43, verse 12 and 13. Wow, that's what a wonderful verse. When I act, who can reverse it? The psalmist agrees. He says, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth, in the sea and in all their depths. Psalm 135, verse 5 and 6. Solomon reminds us, there's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Get your armament all you want. Think you're going to beat because you got the latest weaponry. No, victory rests with the Lord. Not your horse. Not your tank. Not your rocket. That's Proverbs 21, verse 30. So I want you to think that the promises are only as good as the person behind them. Now, we still haven't answered the question about Abraham and Sarah. What about them? Well, brethren, it's a universal covenant. Get my words now. It's a universal covenant. It is not 
it is not a partnership. In other words, it's all of grace. No works involved. As we read through the principal points of God's promise in our text, I want you to notice the one-sided nature of the contract. This is Genesis 12, where it was officially given. Verse 1, go to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Note the definitive assertions. I will, I will, I will. This is God speaking. No equivocation, no ifs, ands, or buts, no conditions, no provisals, no maybes, no possibilities, no, I will do my part if you will do your part. There's none of this. Abraham is being addressed as a recipient of God's blessing, but not as a partner. You know, in a partnership, each individual has his or her side of the agreement to which they must comply. And if they do not comply, well, <laughs> then the contract between them becomes null and void. It's just the way it is. Let me ask this question. Would you like your relationship with God to be based even upon 50% of your performance? Do you see yourself faithful to God, obedient to his law, 50% of the time? Let the wise man Solomon answer for you in case you don't have the answer. Here's what he says. This only have I found, says Solomon. God made man upright. But men have gone in search of many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29. In other words, sin ruined what God made upright. So much so that Isaiah tells us, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts. That's the good things we do. They are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Wow. Brethren, everything we touch, everything we touch is tainted with sin, and the wages of sin is death. Even the green leaves, symbolic of life and energy, they shrivel up, cover the landscape with brown, shriveled deadness, which the wind sweeps away. That's our legacy. And this is why God's promise made to Abraham and Sarah and their descendants must have and did have a one-sided covenant. 
loyalty. What do you mean by that? In biblical times, such covenants were signed, they sealed, delivered in blood. Such covenants were taken very seriously. A verbal promise was more than just making a verbal promise. Now that's not evident in our text, Genesis 12, but it is evident in Genesis 15 at what has been called the ratification of the covenant. It's the same covenant, but now we learn a little more about it and how it came to be. What do we find in Genesis 15, verse 7 and following? I am the Lord who brought you up out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged them the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them all away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. Whoa, whoa. And a thick, I'm reading scripture, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved. They will be ill-treated Ill -treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. That was Egypt. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces that Abraham had arranged there. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. The great river is the Euphrates. Genesis 15, verse 7 and following. All the ingredients are here as part of the ritual of ratifying Old Testament covenants. Animals are sacrificed. They're divided into pieces left and right. They form a walkway or an aisleway between the pieces. And there the particular parties involved in making the transaction walk together <coughs> down Covenant Row between those animal pieces and thereby signify that upon forfeiture of their own lives, these covenant makers vowed not to break the covenant being made that day. It wasn't just a matter of, well, you have my word on it. 
It was, you have my life on it. Ooh. Well, wait a minute. This is getting pretty serious here. Now, if this were a partnership-type covenant, we would expect God and Abraham to walk covenant row together, right? I mean, here's the animals. They're laid out. They make an aisle way. Let's walk together, hand in hand, perhaps. Each person sealing their part of the bargain by the blood of these animals that was slain. Each of them vowing not to break covenant upon penalty of death. But this is no normal ratification. Where is Abraham? Yes, he gathered the appropriate animals. Yes, he sacrificed them and divided them left and right to form a walkway. Yes, as best he knew, Abraham is ready to do his part, keeping the covenant. But as we've already seen, men, because of sin, are incapable of knowing the future or controlling the future or of even 50% obedience to God and his moral code. So if this covenant is to have any hope of fidelity and completion, it cannot depend on Abram. It can't depend on him doing his part. His part will fail because he will fail. His good intentions will end as wishful thinking. His righteous act, that is the good deeds, will turn out filthy rags. The covenant will be stamped null and void. And Abram will shrivel up and die and be carried into the abyss along with all sinners. All this being true, I ask again, Where is Abram at the ratification of this covenant? I'd like to know. Where is he? You know, when Dee and I signed our mortgage for our house on Mary Drive, we met in the realtor's office and she asked the buyers and the sellers alike, is everyone here? That was the first question out of her mouth. Is everyone here? You see, the sellers were signing away their right to the property, and we, the buyers, were signing our obligation to purchase the property. Are everyone here? It was a two-sided contract. So where is Abraham, I ask? Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was sitting, Abraham... <laughs> fell into a deep sleep. Oh no. 
and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. We said, no, wait a minute, that can't, Abraham, that, that can't happen. Abraham, you need to wake up. You have a job to do here. You have to walk covenant row. You have to ratify this covenant. This is no time for sleeping. But Abraham didn't wake up. He was in a deep sleep. The scripture says, a dreadful darkness ESV says a dreadful and great darkness. It's like I can't find enough words to pile it up. He was in a coma of sorts. His eyelids were so heavy, he couldn't open his eyes, let alone walk. And we think, oh, wow, this is terrible. At the very moment when God is willing to enter into an agreement... To bless Abraham and his ascendants with all these I wills that we just read about in Genesis chapter 12, the man is conked out and sound asleep. Ah, but on a second look, it isn't very terrible at all. Given what we know about man and his failures to keep his word, It is better if Abraham continues to sleep, to remain comatose. Oh no, but then, <laughs> I mean, how will the promise come to be? How will a covenant be ratified in force, fulfilled? Who will see to it that all its promises and conditions are kept? Can there be a covenant without Abraham's participation? God, you have to do something. And God answers, verse 17, When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pan with a blazing torch passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham didn't make the covenant with God. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 verse 29. Salvation, brethren, is not a partnership. It is not God doing his part and you doing yours. That was the Galatian error. We have a whole book in the Bible about that kind of thinking. Wrong thinking. No, it's all 100% of God's doing. Abraham was a righteous man, but he wasn't righteous enough to contribute his share to a covenant agreement with the holy, perfect creator God of the universe. He was a good man, but as Jesus explained, not good enough. Jesus put it this way, no one is good except God alone. That says it all, right? Mark 10, verse 18. No one's good except God. Or if you want it another way, 
Jesus said this way, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Brethren, salvation is 100% all of God's grace. It's not you doing your part and God doing his part. Together you come together, you got a covenant. No. It's you like Abraham sleeping under the tree while God walks covenant row all by himself. And he does it on behalf of his people. Who's his people? In Abraham. Those who believe in what Abraham believed in. What did Abraham believe in? The promised seed. Oh, you mean Isaac? No. No, not Isaac. Paul says the seed was who? Christ. Oh, that can't be. You mean to tell me Abraham saw the seed as being the Christ, the coming Savior? That can't be. That's the only thing it could be. There's only one Savior, whether you're talking Old Testament or New. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God can do the miraculous, and that's what salvation is. Grace is his miracle to us. It's not a partnership. It's not, well, you know, I got this covenant row all lined out. I got the dead men, animals slain, separated. Let's walk it together. No, God says, you go over there and go to sleep. You go into a coma, and I'll walk it all by myself on your behalf. And I'll grant it to you as a gift. Do you believe that? We are called to believe it. But let's not think that our faith is what saved us. It's God's grace that saved us. And in His grace, He grants us faith, which Ephesians tells us is His gift. The Bible also says, Paul says it, not all men have faith. Say, of course they do. You know, they walk into a room, they throw a light switch, they have faith the light will go on. You've all heard those kind of announcements and descriptions of faith. Brethren, that's not faith. That's knowledge. Why? Because you walked into a room a thousand times before, flipped the switch a thousand times, and the light came on. You want to know what faith would be? It would be walk in the room, flip the switch on, and not expect the light to come on. Faith is God's gift. And not all men have it. So if we're going to pray for anything, pray for our lost 
loved ones and friends and relatives, we need to pray that God would grant them faith and repentance. The two are twins. They're twin graces. They go together. Repentance, a turning away from sin. Faith, a reaching out and grabbing hold of Christ as my Savior. We need both. And they're both the gifts of God. Father, we thank you for your word. It is humbling to us to realize what our part is in all of this. What is our part? It's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. Where are we going to get this faith? You're going to grant it to us. But I love my sin. Why would I ever choose a life of holiness? Why would I ever want to renounce things that I love? Because God will grant us the realization that we will perish in our sins if we continue to cling on to them. But there's salvation in one person only, and that's in Christ. I thank you, Lord, today for coming, for emptying heaven of its glory, that you might come upon us in a human body, that you might go to a cross and pay for the indebtedness of our sin. I pray that we'll believe this and trust it. In Jesus' name, for his glory and our good, we ask these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 468 in the Trinity. 468. It's number 94 in the Trinity. 94. 94. 94. Trinity, but number 94. If you'll stand with me when you find it.
If God wants you, if he determines to save you, then even the gates of hell. You know, we get the idea sometimes that Satan is so powerful. Well, he is powerful. But he's a servant of God. He does only what God allows him to do. When it comes to the salvation of sinners, there's this fight that goes on, and God always wins when God has set his heart and affection upon a sinner. That's why you need God's grace. It's called God's grace. Say, well, everyone doesn't get God's grace that way, do they? No, they don't. That's why it's grace. (laughs) You get it. They didn't. You can't do that, God. That's the way we think. And God says, Abraham, you're just over there in the corner sleeping. I'll handle this. You are at the mercy of God. Anything I can get across to you today? So what can I do? Nothing except this. You can pray that God's mercy Listen to the prayers of people. If they're right prayers, now if you're going to boss God around, tell him off, be mocking him. No, you're not going to get that prayer. That prayer isn't going to go any higher than his ceiling. But if you come in a repentant heart, a contrite heart, God, forgive me, a sinner. Wow. I'm pretty defiant. I don't want you to rule in my life. You're not telling me what to do. You come that way before God, you really think you're going to win? A lot of people come. That's the way they pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I give my tithe weekly to the church. And when they have a project going on, I go down there and help, even though I'm not a member of that church. And there's a little old lady up the street that has trouble making her bills. And I go up there once a week with some food back. And I, and I, and I. Do we really think that these little things that we do match up to what God expects from us? God is holy, righteous, the creator of the universe. You're going to give him a smidget here and a smidget there, a kindness here and a good deed over here.
And then you're going to expect that because of those little smidgets, he's going to say, oh, come on, welcome into my heaven. Now he's going to say, just like he said to Isaiah, all of your righteous deeds, Isaiah, are as filthy rags in my sight. You're giving me filth and asking for a kingdom in exchange. What kind of an exchange is that? What I want from you, God says, is your life. I want your soul. I want you to repent of your sin and to come to know righteous living under the righteous God of heaven. And if you will do that, you'll be brought into my kingdom. But if you don't, you will enter into the abyss along with Satan and his evil Myriads. I pray God will grant you faith and repentance. They're both the gifts of God. They're twin graces. They always come together in the saving of people. Repentance from our sin. Faith in Christ to pay for those sins. Lord, I thank you for your word. Help us today to see our sin. But also to see the sin. You haven't left us without a witness. You haven't left us to our own devices. You have come to save people, not just to provide salvation, but to procure it. And I thank you for that. Because if you don't do it, it ain't going to get done. We're so selfish. We're so egocentric. We think we're so good. We don't need a Savior. But we do. Boy, do we. Now I thank you that you have come and you have granted us life in Christ if we will have him. Lord, make us have him. Amen. We are dismissed. It's always And there was no way I was going to go back there and mess with it while you were up here. No. Is to get the songs to play, that's playing through the audio of the computer through the sound system. But she's also watching the stream where you're talking, which is also sending audio. And normally we can't hear it right. because we're not we're not right. playing it on anything. So that's why it worked when it was just you and Yeah, And I wasn't streaming. It was just and it didn't hit me until I'm sitting there. I'm like, because even when we were sitting here and the music was playing, I'm like, man, it, it, it almost sounds like two songs were playing. That's what she said. She says, Mom, it sounds like two songs you did before I, service. I said something to her and she's like, I think that's normal. So, no. I think what was happening is we were back feeding into Because the, she was listening to us. Yeah. We should have, I think if she would have just closed the browser tabs playing the, the stream, I think it would have been okay. She probably so, just also the stream.
that that probably would have worked too. So I didn't think of that till after, but I'm like, that's why it worked we for you. We will know next time. Yeah. Oh, I knew. I knew. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's it's all right. That's and of course the date Jared's not here, right. so you probably would have known. And that I did pick Kim's on purpose, except for the the one right before the. Uh, one right before the, the sermon. The other ones, I knew we could sing just fine, but I'm like, yeah, we got a compliment. This one's fun. I like it. And he was like, who picked that hymn? I'm like, 